Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. Come up a little bit here. Sweet. I hope this morning you're opened up to Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. We're going to go through verses 8 through 11 this morning, and I will, I will read those for us to start. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And as I read this passage, if we were really reading it, it's a difficult passage. It's a difficult passage. Well, as, as another pastor in town, uh, Steve Schwartz, would say, um, sometimes texts are difficult because they're not clear. It's like, what does that mean? You know, it's it just, and so the difficulty is figuring out what it means. The other times that a text is difficult is when you do know what it says. It's plain as day, black and white as can be, yet it's difficult to process emotionally, sometimes mentally, spiritually, how does that work? It really makes us wrestle with God, question God, question what we're reading. And I think, well, I know that our text today is very much the same. I, I believe that it is 100% black and white. I don't think that I have to interpret this much at all. But yet, as we read it, it's going to be difficult to comprehend. And that's been my struggle all week as I've prayed for this church, as this church would hear the message, even though it may seem distant from what we understand or the concept and thrust of what we're going to study today, it just, it may not seem relevant, but it is real. We have brothers and sisters who this passage means everything to them. And so let's approach this passage like that this morning. Our sermon is titled, The Privilege of Martyrdom. The Privilege of of martyrdom. And so this morning we are going to talk about a spiritual gift, one that is foreign to us. It is foreign to us, quite literally. We don't experience this. If we were in Africa, yes. Afghanistan, yes. China, yes. This gift, it's, it's unique. It's glorious. It's a privilege. It's a unique gift in that it is the one spiritual gift that only has one time use. You can only use it one time in your life. And this is the gift of martyrdom. 
the gift of martyrdom. Martyr, being a martyr, is dying for your faith in and the witness of Jesus Christ. It is dying because of Jesus Christ. It is not dying because, or it is not dying while being a Christian. It is dying because you are a Christian. That if you weren't a Christian, you would be alive otherwise. And so martyrdom says you are dying because of your faith in Jesus. My desire this morning is for all of us to wrestle with this and think about if we were in their shoes in the church of Smyrna this morning, what would we do? And I hope that you would leave this morning adhering to the command of Jesus to this church in light of their circumstances where Jesus says, do not fear. Do not fear. But instead, I hope that we could see martyrdom as a Jesus-glorifying privilege. Our context this morning is the second stop on the delivery route of the letters to the churches of Jesus in Revelation. Our stop is in Smyrna. And I'm going to pronounce it different ways all morning. Smyrna, Smyrna, I don't know. I don't know. <clears throat> Smyrna is 35, 35 miles north of Ephesus. It is the one city that is still alive and well today. It is the one city of Revelation that you can visit today, and it's not just like awesome-looking rubble. It's actually still a city. It is the modern city of Izmir. Now, at the time of this passage of the writing, it housed many temples to Apollos, uh, Asclepius, Zeus, Aphrodite. It was a city known for its zeal for Rome, like insane zeal for Rome. You can imagine it like a city in the United States that would just have American flags everywhere and eagles everywhere. That, that was Smyrna. So much so that they were recognized by Rome and giving all kinds of special rights to build statues and to build temples because their zeal was so great. And they had a group there that was known as the Imperial Cult. The Imperial Cult, which Sounds scary, right? And, and again, it sounds like a great name for a metal band. The Imperial Cult. And so this cult, crazy, zealous, fanatical cult, they believed that when former emperors of Rome died, they became gods. So reminds you a lot of Egypt, which we will see in a couple of chapters. And so this cult believes emperors became gods and this city was so zealous that they had the right to build specific temples to these former emperor gods. They were so passionate about it. If you did not share their passion, if you did not share their zeal, they would persecute you. Sometimes they would kill you. If you're not excited for what they're excited about, they, they will cancel you. One thing to note um, that, that will come in handy later is that Jews in Rome at this time are a protected religion. It's key. Jews are not required to participate in any worship of any Roman gods. And so the cult, by Roman authority that they're zealous about, can't attack Zeus, uh, Jews, I'm sorry, they can't attack, in the name of Zeus they can, but they can't attack Jews. And so here we have a letter from Smyrna to Jesus, um, from Jesus, and just as every other letter, it is presented with the character of Jesus, something about Jesus they need to know before he speaks to them. And we see this in verse 8. 
the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. In this description, we see Jesus representing, presenting his authority in the power of his resurrection. The first and the last is meant for you to think about the fact that just a couple of verses earlier, God the Father said, he is the Alpha and the Omega, and Jesus says right after that, and I am the first and the last. They are the same. This is God. Jesus is the everlasting. He is the everlasting God who died. Who died. That's quite the unexpected follow-up to, to presenting yourself as everlasting. Right? I am the first and last who died. And I believe the whole point of this, especially as we will see talking to this church, is to proclaim that he is God, that he is one with the Father, but also that, that he took on human flesh. Infinite, everlasting God taking on finite human flesh, and just like other human flesh, dying and then coming back to life. The key Christological truth for Smyrna to understand and for us to understand is that Jesus is bigger than death. He's the first and the last. He died and came back to life. He is infinitely bigger than death. So we have Jesus, the everlasting God who knows everything. What does he know about Smyrna? Everything, right? Everything. He just he knows everything. And we see this in verses 9 and 10. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews, and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. And so we see three observations about these observations of Jesus. He knows they are suffering. He knows who is doing it. And he knows it's going to continue. And that's what this letter is about. So first, Jesus knows they are suffering. And this is a commendation. This is a compliment. This is the thing they're doing right. He knows that they are suffering. They are patiently enduring. They are facing violence, poverty, and slander. Yet Jesus says they are rich. Even though economically poor and thought poorly of by their neighbors, they are rich. They are poor and disliked for the sake of Jesus. And we know historically that if they didn't follow Jesus, they wouldn't be poor and they wouldn't be disliked. This is all key, right? It all ties in together. Yet they have Jesus, which means they are richer than their oppressors. And if this sounds familiar, like you've heard this before, it's because in James chapter 2, verse 5, that we read a couple of months ago, James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And so being poor is a spiritual advantage, which we've learned throughout the New Testament. It is not a disadvantage to be poor. It is an advantage, and by, by that measurement, Smyrna is rich. They are spiritually rich in Christ. 
And so Jesus knows they are suffering, but he also knows who is causing them to suffer. It says in verse 9, And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. What does Jesus mean? Those who say they are Jews and are not, they're posers, right? These aren't real Jews. These Jews who are not Jews are Jewish by birth. They are descendants of Abraham. They are ethnic Jews, but they are not spiritual Jews. And Jesus makes a distinction here that we really need to follow throughout the rest of Revelation, that there is a distinction between ethnic Jews and spiritual Jews. Jesus says, real Jews are spiritual Jews who follow the king of the Jews, who is Jesus. And Jews who are not real Jews, Jesus says, follow Satan. They follow the synagogue of Satan. And it sounds pretty extreme, if you think about it. Like, did Jesus say that? And yet, this is not a new concept. If you want to go back uh, maybe a year or so in the church, going through the book of John, in John 8, 39 through 44, remember Jesus saying this to, to these ethnic Jews. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me? A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God? This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And so we see this lead perfectly into our text today. And so Jesus has made a distinction. Again, this will come up later. Ethnic Jews versus spiritual Jews. Real Jews, Jesus says, follow him and their father is God. Jews who say they are Jews and are not are part of the synagogue of Satan. And they do the works of Satan. One of the works they did, according to this passage, is slander. Which doesn't sound that bad. They said some mean things about them. So what? Right? I mean, that happens all the time. What's so bad about this? What is happening here? is that these Jews who are not Jews are communicating with the imperial cult. And so slander here means that they are telling this cult, Christians have nothing to do with us. Remember, the Jews are protected. Jews are completely protected. They, are, they cannot suffer violence. They cannot suffer slander. So what the Jews are doing, and it's a smart move, you know, and Satan has a plan here, push the Christians out from among you. Because at this time in history, Christianity and Judaism, they, they were worshiping together. Even though it was becoming Christian, these Jews wanted to let them know they have nothing to do with us. And so by the Jews pushing the Christians aside and letting the Romans know and the imperial cult know that they were not Jewish, they are now open to violence. They now must commit emperor worship, which 
Christians can't do. And so all of a sudden, this slander, which just sounds like, oh, they're just talking, they are talking them into violence. They are talking them into economic oppression. They are talking them into being killed. So it's huge. It's not just, just words. They are, they are murdering with their words. They are setting them up to be killed. It says here, Jesus tells them that they are also going to suffer more. And, and this is interesting because he doesn't tell them that they're going to stop suffering, right? He doesn't tell them to get over it. He doesn't tell them, I suffered more, right? Jesus could have just said, like, rub some dirt in it. I suffered, like, you can suffer. He said, no, you are going to suffer more. In verse 10, Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. And so tribulation is coming from Satan through his synagogue to those who follow Jesus. And as Jesus has mentioned in Revelation already, and I've mentioned several times, the application even in the midst of something very scary, do not fear. Do not fear is the command of Jesus to a church who is saying that they are going to face intense, even deadly persecution. And I think there's three reasons that they don't have to fear. One is that Jesus has already said that he's the first and the last talking to him. He knows everything and he's completely in control. They don't need to fear. Second, Jesus explains that he is allowing Satan to do what Satan is doing. So once again, just as we find out through the entire Bible, through all scripture, Satan thinks he's doing something. Satan is using all of his energy with his little plans and yet it's Jesus who's going to get the glory out of it. And Jesus is saying this again. Don't fear Satan like he's just a little pawn in my glory, in our story. He's working for us. Third, this is a small window of tribulation. Right? So 10 days. This is not 10 literal days. Whenever numbers are used like this, in Scripture, in Revelation, numbers are symbolic. But we know this is a short amount of time. It might be less than 10 days, maybe a little bit more than 10 days. We know this is a short amount of time because even though numbers are symbolic, they're huge. Right? When we read 1,000 years, it's probably way more awesome than 1,000 years. But this says days. This doesn't say years. And so even though it's a symbolic number, it's also symbolically small. And so they need to just hang on. They need to hang on. They can get through this. The problem is it's going to be intense. It's going to be short and intense because we read in verse 10, for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Now, one thing I haven't talked about yet this morning, it's kind of hard, you've got you to kind of figure out where, where in the sermon you want to talk about this, is what's missing in the message to this church. 
there's a glaring hole in the message to this church. There is no correction. There is no complaint. And this just seems like a good as time as any to point out that they are doing nothing wrong. Like nothing. Like not even, like their coffee's bad, right? Like nothing. They all-knowing beginning and last Jesus has looked at this church has nothing to call them to correct or to complain about. And so we have a faithful church, which it makes it so interesting then, then the one who died calls them to be faithful unto death. The one who died calls them to be faithful unto death. Now we kind of see why the introduction was what it was, how, they all, how this all fits together. And again, just for clarity, a Christian martyr is someone who dies because of their faith in and belief in Jesus Christ or their witness of Jesus Christ. Just as an estimated, I think it's about 8,000 or so a year that we know of that we can track die each year for their faith. Um, there's many people who think that number is much larger just based on, on what we don't know. And to be fair, Christianity is not unique for having martyrs. Other religions have martyrs as well, but, in, but not in the same way. For instance, there's a synagogue of Satan in our world today known as Islam. Let's just name it. A synagogue of Satan doing works that they would say in the name of God, killing the people of God, like we see here. A religion that claims, literally, that they are the people of God. And what's interesting is their argument is the same as the Jews here. Islam would say they are descendants of Abraham. That's the same argument. They are responsible for most of the deaths of Christians in the world today. And those that Islam doesn't kill are killed by corrupt governments. So just like in Revelation. You see, this is one of the fundamental differences between the church of Jesus Christ and the synagogue of Satan. On the one hand, you have those who will, are willing to die for their faith. And on the other hand, you have those who are willing to kill for their faith. We have those in Revelation that conquer through dying and then we have a synagogue of Satan who conquers through killing. Two completely different approaches to martyrdom. Even those of the synagogue who would say that they are martyrs, who would say that they are dying for their faith, I would argue are not really. When somebody straps a bomb to themselves and walk, walks into a church and blows everybody up who disagrees with them, they're the ones hitting that button. They're not martyrs, they're murderers. The Christian martyr, as at least some of the church of Smyrna are going to be, are not so by choice. It's another distinction of a Christian martyr. Nobody decides to be one. 
It is a unique calling and privilege and gift from Jesus. Martyrdom is not a punishment. It is not a punishment for not being a good enough Christian, and it is not a test to prove your faith. Martyrdom is not to prove that you're willing to die for Jesus. Martyrdom is a privilege for someone who is faithful enough to die for Jesus. Therefore, faithfulness seems to operate as a prerequisite, right, in this passage. There's nothing wrong. They don't have to prove anything. They're already miserable. They're already under persecution. And they're called to be faithful unto death. And I know this is a weighty subject that, that many of us haven't thought about whether we'd really die for our faith. I think most of us, when we came to the faith to believing in Jesus, when we weighed out that cost of what it meant to follow Jesus, if it would cost us friends or family or jobs, whatever it might be, I don't think any of us thought that it might cost us our life. And so there's something about this that is, that is so distant from us. But I think that we must understand it. To understand what our brothers and sisters are going through. Who are just like us, just people who just want to worship Jesus. And it's costing them everything. I want us to understand this so that we don't fear it. We don't think it's punishment. We don't think we have to prove anything. And we don't fear it. And so I want to look at martyrdom as privilege. Such a foreign concept. Martyrdom is privilege. But the idea of suffering as privilege comes from Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's Jesus saying that. What happened to the prophets who were persecuted? They died. And not gunshots to the head, like sawn in half, boiled. Some of them lit on fire and stabbed at the same time, tied to multiple horses at once, and the horses were then shushed away to pull apart their bodies. Jesus said, they're blessed. There is a special place in Jesus' heart for martyrs. We will see that throughout Revelation, and it's nothing for us to be jealous or offended by. Like Jesus has a heart, just like as you go through the Bible and you say, does God have a heart specifically for certain people? And you see the children and those who can't help themselves, right? The widow. But you see Jesus has a special heart for specific people and martyrs are one of them. We will see that, that Jesus loves his martyrs, that, that he says it's rewarding to die for him. Like me, I'm sure many of us would endure persecution, even be willing to die for Jesus, just because Jesus is Jesus. That's enough. Like, what else does Jesus have to prove to me to convince me that he's worth dying for? 
But it's Jesus who also says that there's a special reward for those who die for him, that he notices that. Now, suffering for Jesus, again, is ordained by Jesus, by the first and last everlasting God. Martyrdom is a gift that is given to someone just like faith is given to someone. And I think this is clear as day in Philippians 1.29 where, where Paul writes, where if you know Paul's story, he, got to be, he was knocked off his horse and pushed on the ground and blinded by the light and given the gift of faith. So he knows. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe faith in him, but also suffer for his sake. And so what we see here is that suffering is a granted, given privilege. It's not a punishment. It's a granted, given privilege. That is why in the book of Acts, the apostles, in in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, it says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is the name of Jesus. It says they were flogged. Anybody here been flogged? Nobody comes out of that singing. Their flesh was hanging off of them. They were bleeding. They're probably hunched over in pain like zombies. They were flogged. And they come out of that singing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy, that Jesus thought they were worthy enough to suffer just for his name because his name is so holy and worthy. And even this morning, if you would counter, well, they didn't die, they suffered. I think, to be honest, I think sometimes continuous suffering is harder. Being beaten every day and imprisoned for years of your life, being starved, no light, being beaten continuously, you know, and ridiculed and talked down to is just as hard. I think we'll see that in a few minutes. I think it would be easier if I was in that situation. If I was in that situation, I'd just be, you know, please martyr me. Right? I mean, that's fair. Okay, if I could just die now, wasn't that Paul's argument to be or not to be? Isn't it better to be in the presence of God than than to go on being beaten? That was Paul's thought. It's okay to think like that. That's the way Paul thought as well. Just instead of just beating me, just let me die and be in your presence. But also, these same apostles, if you don't know the story, they are all martyred anyway within that generation. In 1 Corinthians 13.3, a very uh, famous passage where Paul is talking about love and spiritual gifts. Right, it's a famous passage. Love is, love is kind, patient. We all know it. Well, the actual context, some of you may know, isn't actually like a, a wedding ceremony. It is people are, are abusing spiritual gifts. And he's talking about spiritual gifts and how to use them with love. But right before that famous part that goes on all the mugs, he says this. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. 
And this is why theologians make the arguments that martyrdom, which is shown as a privilege throughout Scripture, is a gift. This is in a section about gifts, and he's talking about doing things in love, and he's saying, even if I'm martyred, if I'm not loving, then I don't gain anything. And so we see two things in this verse. One, martyrdom is a gift. Second, there is something to be gained. Right? Because that's what Paul says. If I don't do this right, I don't gain anything. What was, where were you looking to gain? And so there's something to gain in being martyred. And we find this in verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who came to life gives the crown of life. The one who came to life gives the crown of life. The crown of life is also known as the martyr's crown, if you've ever heard that expression before, the martyr's crown. It is the crown for those who, obviously, who have been martyred, but I think more than that, I think anybody who was persecuted very intensely, that they also get this crown as well. If they experience difficult persecution, that although they didn't die, they essentially gave up their life. I mean, you're not living if you spend your whole life in prison, starving, being beaten. And the reason I come to that conclusion, I'm not trying to be controversial, is James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so we have a cross-reference about this crown the crown of life, the martyr's crown, but the reference from James here is those who have suffered intensely. There is something about being tested and certainly dying for your faith that brings you into intimacy with God. It is so unique. If you remember in the book of Acts, I don't have this scripture in here, it just came to my mind, but when we see the first martyr in the book of Acts, when Stephen is just getting pummeled to death by bricks and rocks, he just starts preaching an awesome sermon. I think he starts preaching at first, and then they react, but he continually, he, he's just speaking to everybody, and he says he sees Jesus. And his vision of Jesus is so touching because when he sees Jesus, what does he say about Jesus? He said, Jesus is standing I see Jesus standing. Why is that significant? Because Jesus is seated. He's seated. He's royalty. He gets up for nobody. Jesus doesn't have to get up for anybody. When Jesus sees Stephen being martyred, he stands for him. That is how much Jesus loves his martyrs. He's standing to welcome him. It's a uniqueness noticed and recognized by Jesus with this crown. Not everybody gets it. No reason to be jealous. It's an honor and a privilege. And you might think at some point, and I've heard people talk like this. I really have. I'm not joking. This doesn't sound so bad. Being a martyr, having Jesus give me a special crown and stand for me, 
look, I don't have a lot going on in my life right now. Economy's going bad. I, I don't have much of a future. I think I'm just going to go and be martyred. I've heard it. But you can't. You can't. Being a martyr for Jesus is not a decision you can make. It is a privilege with reward, but not one we are to seek. Is that confusing? Yeah. Right? Sounds great. It has this reward, but we are not to seek it out. Be ready. Yes, be ready. Absolutely. But do not seek it. Again, Jesus, who's just talked about how much he loves martyrs, says in Matthew 10, 23, talking to the apostles, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. You would have thought, he would have said, hey, they persecute you, just stay there and die, and then you're going to be more awesome than everybody. He says, flee. In the book of Acts, how does the gospel spread? It is through people fleeing persecution, right? The first major spreading of the gospel of the Christian church comes after Stephen is martyred. When Stephen is martyred, people don't line up in the church like, I'm next. Oh, is this what we're doing? Yeah, I want to be next. They flee. And the gospel spreads because people flee this persecution. An example of this is in Acts 14, verses 5 through 7. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. What Jesus wants for us to do is preach the gospel, to patiently endure and to not fear death, but also don't look for death. Don't go out of your way to look to die. If Jesus wants us to die for him, it will happen. And I believe that we will know when it happens. There's something unusual that happens when someone is martyred. And we see this in documentation that we have of martyrs, where throughout history, those who were martyred, you read their life stories, whoever it might be, they have fled for years, right? Even the Bible coming to English is based on people fleeing and writing and fleeing and writing some more, right? And Luther fleeing and going and staying in this castle and this castle. They are fleeing. But there comes a moment that they realize that their time is up. There's a moment where they realize it hits them. I'm a martyr. And this is what a lot of theologians call the gift of martyrdom. It's this gift in that moment where you no longer look to flee. You're not trying to get away. You have peace. Not only do you have peace, you have ridiculous confidence. Like, you are going to die and you are going to give glory to Jesus. And we have example and example of people being lit on fire, stabbed, sawn in half, skin peeled off, all of it, who are praying for the people doing it, having visions of Jesus, 
singing songs that we sing in the church today while they are being killed. And this is a gift. Such was the case of Polycarp. About 800, uh, 800, 80, confuse everybody here, about 80 to 100 years after this letter, I lean towards 80, Polycarp was now the bishop of Smyrna. Did so much for the early church. I mean, he's like one of the heroes of the faith. Early church father. Writings have been so important to us. Really much of Revelation, a lot of the outside sources of Revelation are from Polycarp, who was in this city. He was finally caught after years of, like, people say it's a miracle that this guy couldn't get caught. Like, it was miraculous, because they would know where he was, try to get him, and go in to a place they knew he was, and they couldn't capture him for decades. He was the most wanted man one day they catch up with him, and everybody who wanted to kill him got together, made a ridiculous bonfire. It was supposed to be just like absurd amount, like more than necessary, just this huge pile of wood that they were going to nail him to and light him on fire. So they caught him and bound him, and what he had to say, I'm not actually going to say the most famous part of what he had to say, because... He talks about how he's never going to recant, like Jesus has been faithful to him. He's not going to betray Jesus. But his last words were actually a prayer, which was recorded. And Polycarp said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you. I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, to you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory, both now and forever. Amen. He was just overwhelmed that he was considered worthy. According to tradition, this happened after he was already nailed to this pile. It had already been nailed down. People were actually trying to pull him off, and he, he was like, nope. His followers, which were many, were trying to pull him off the pile, and he's like, no, this is a gift. This is what's supposed to happen to me. I'm worthy for this to happen to me. It's a privilege, and it has this wonderful symbol in this crown. But they are not the only ones to experience eternal life, the martyrs. 
You don't have to prove anything to God. You don't have to die for Jesus to live eternally. Right? That's why Jesus died. And so what we find is the one who came to life gives eternal life to all believers. And we find this in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now the second death is the opposite of eternal life, which is mentioned later in Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let it be clear, the second death is the lake of fire. It is hell. Those who conquer and have their name in the book of life do not face it. There are two options we are presented here with. And so the question for us this morning, as we read this, what does this have to do with us? Goodness gracious. Was this just a topical sermon about a topic that means nothing and probably will never mean anything to us? What are we to get out of this? Or is there a lesson to be learned here for us? I think the application this morning lay in two questions that we must ask ourselves. The second one, I think, being much more difficult, surprisingly. The first question is, are you willing to die for Jesus? Are you willing to die for Jesus? I know what my spirit says. Man, but I know what my flesh says. This is why we study passages like this, so that our spirit can overcome our weak flesh, right? Because I know what my flesh says, get out of town. But my spirit says, what an honor. What a privilege it would be. Are we willing to die for Jesus? And I think right now, at least for the next half hour, I think all of us would. Right? After this sermon, the adrenaline going, yes, of course we would. But the reality is, at least today, I don't know what the future holds, but I, I just, unless we're going to the mission field or under an extreme circumstance, I don't think any of us is going to have a gun put to our head which then leads to the second question. Are you willing to live for Jesus? Are you willing to live for Jesus? Martyrs are called to be faithful unto the death. The rest of the church is called to be faithful until death. We are both called to die. One is called to give up their life, and the other is called to die to themselves to truly live. Church, do we love Jesus more than we love our own life? That's what this text is asking us. Do we love Jesus more than we love our own life? If we don't, and we're not willing to die for Jesus, we're probably not willing to live for Jesus. Think about that. Why would you not be willing to die for somebody but be willing to live for them? It doesn't make sense. 
That's why there's a freedom, even though we probably won't be martyred, there's a freedom in knowing, yes, I would be martyred. We can operate from that mindset still and have that freedom that, yes, my whole life I give up. Even without giving up, I give up my whole life to Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this isn't an accidental loss. When it says whoever loses their life, isn't like, oh, what happened to my life? No, it's like weighing out. What is the cost of following Jesus and coming to the conclusion that following Jesus outweighs anything else in this life? So then why not use our lives for his glory? Jesus is going to get the glory anyway. We are all going to see the glory of Jesus. I would rather see it by his side. I would rather see it in his arms. I would rather see it with all of you surrounding him in glory than see his glory as one being judged or see his glory from the lake of fire. Let's get on board now. And so let me just end by saying, being a martyr, it is a privilege that is bestowed upon by Jesus. But it is not the only privilege. Do not sit there and be upset that you're not a martyr. That wasn't the point of all this. There is another privilege. Anyone's name who is in the book of life, you are privileged. If your name is in the book of life, you are privileged more than anybody other than Jesus who has walked the face of this earth. That is why Jesus said you are rich. If your name is in the book of life, you are rich beyond anything this world can comprehend. We don't even have words for the amount of wealth that is in having your name in this book. That is a privilege. Having your name in the book of life, that's why it ends right there, is a privilege. Having your name in the book of life means the first and last eternal God took on flesh to die for you so that you would only have to die once, not twice, because he already died that second death for you. Have you ever, will you ever be more privileged than that? The God of the universe died for you. That's a privilege. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope that you understand that privilege. You are, you are so privileged. It is only when we are willing to die for Jesus and die to ourselves that we can truly live for him. And so again, I just want to end with the same two questions. Are you willing to die for Jesus? And... Are you willing to live for Jesus? Let me pray. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.